I will serve Thee, because I love Thee. You have given life to me. I was nothing before You found me. You have given. take our Bibles today. Turn over to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Boy, this is a popular passage in the Word of God. Everybody, pretty much, anybody that's been in church at least, anybody that's ever heard any Bible story in Sunday school, whatever it might be, has heard about David and Goliath. David and Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to begin reading in verse 4. We're going to read through verse 8 to begin with. And then we're going to kind of pick our way through the chapter a little bit and 
We'll see how things move along, but I do want to share a message with you, an application I think that's appropriate and necessary in our day, the age in which we live. In the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17, we begin reading in verse 4. Again, we know that the Israelites, the Philistines, are at war. And the Bible tells us in verse 4, And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. <clears throat> he had had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear had weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one beareth a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am I not a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you. Let him come down to me. Father, we come to you. We ask that you'll speak to our hearts today, that you'll move in our lives, that you'll inspire us to be better for you. Father, there's a generation that statistically is slipping away. There's a generation, it seems, that isn't as interested in the things of the Word of God or the old paths like it used to be. We ask, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts and help us to understand and recognize what's necessary and needful today. If indeed we're going to save a generation, resurrect a generation and a dead church even. We love you. We need you. We pray that you help us today walk these aisles and do your work in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we have a giant, the giant of the Bible, Goliath. Here's a man that stands anywhere from nine feet, six inches to probably 10 feet tall. And you know, it's probably that he weighed, oh, 500 plus pounds. Can't even hardly imagine somebody that's that awfully large, that big. Now, I think it's important to note that this man had to be more than just a tall man. I've been doing a little looking at the tallest men in the world, and I believe right now it's around eight, uh, seven foot nine. And yet every time you see somebody that's around that height, you'll notice that they're like a stick, a twig. Their legs are very wobbly. They aren't very sturdy, nor are they steady. It seems that they have some kind of, I guess, um, genetic problem in their body that causes them to grow so tall, but the rest of them can't keep up. But that isn't the case with Goliath. Goliath, again, is running around nine and a half to ten feet tall, probably over 500 pounds. The Bible tells us that his coat of mail was anywhere from 90 to 157 pounds. A matter of fact, the spearhead. You think about a spear, it says his spear was as a weaver, weaver's beam, but the, the spearhead alone weighed 15 pounds. His helmet is estimated to weigh probably around 30 pounds. Goliath was a giant of a man. His armor again and was probably around 150 to 200 pounds. This wasn't a weakling. This wasn't somebody that just was a, a force to be looked upon. He was a force to be reckoned with.
I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23 now. We're going to note that David now has arrived at the camp and all of a sudden, Goliath, this great giant, shows up on the scene. The Bible says here in verse 23, And as he talked with him, David talking, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. While David is there talking with the other warriors, the other, the other soldiers of the army, it's, that's when Goliath makes his way down into the valley and he begins to cry out and blaspheme the God of Israel and also defy the armies of Israel. The men see his, his huge physique and they're so afraid of, of Goliath that they make they head for the hills, so to speak. They hide behind the rocks. They take refuge. But David stands there thinking to himself, wait a second, something's wrong with this. David sits and listens. And as he hears the blasphemous voice of this giant, as he hears him making fun, mocking him, aligning the armies of Israel, there's a fire that's lit inside of David. There's a passion that makes its way to the surface. And he is stirred like none other. He begins to ask about this giant and what's going to happen and why in the world hasn't somebody, somebody stepped up? Why hasn't somebody shut his big mouth? It's interesting to note, David wants to do something mighty on behalf of God, but it's funny, his own family questioned his motives. Look at verse 28. The Bible tells us there, and Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why comest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down, that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? But here we have Eliab, his own brother, questioning his motives. I mean, David wants to shut up a giant. David wants to do something about this, this mocking, about this blasphemy. But yet instead, his brother says to him, Hey, listen, I doubt your motivation. I can't imagine why you're here. The truth is you just wanted to get close to the battle. The truth is you wanted to be, go home and tell a big story. You want to be able to tell the world that you were that close to a giant. The fact is your motives stink, David. And I want you to understand anytime you want to do something to take down a giant, there's always going to be somebody, maybe even your family, that questions your motives. Not only that, but his own leaders doubted his ability. Look at verse 33. The Bible tells us there that when once word got to Saul that David wanted to do something about a big mouth giant, he finally received him unto himself. But notice how he responds to David instead. In verse 33, he says to him here, he says, And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For thou art but a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. Even his own leaders are doubting his ability now. 
And then to top it all off, when he stands before Goliath in the end, Goliath laughs at him. Look at verse 42. He says, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. I'm going to tell you something. If you get a fire lit in your heart, you get a desire to do something big for God. If you want to do the impossible on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, my friend, I promise you, I guarantee you, you may have family members that question your motives. You're going to have leaders that doubt your ability. You're going to have an enemy that will laugh in your face. But you just keep on loving Jesus. Look at you at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Verse 40 now. I'm going to tell you something. Before long, he's going to shut all the critics up. Look at what happens in verse 40. The Bible says, He took his staff in his hand and he chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a script. And his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto him, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh into the fowls of the air and to the beast of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came, drew nigh to meet David, that David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slung it, slang it, excuse me. There's a difference between slunging and slanging. I don't know what that difference is, but the Bible makes sure that we know he slang it. And he smote the Philistine in his forehead, and that the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with the stone, and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in, David, in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. What a victory that day. The seemingly impossible had been accomplished. I mean, there was David now. He's in the valley with the giant. Interestingly enough, and I find this to be interesting, David wasn't moseying along. David wasn't timidly, timid, uh, timid, timidly trying to make his way to the giant. No, the Bible says that he ran toward the giant. He was prepared and he was ready. He had his sling to slang and he was ready with his stones 
And he was ready to confront that giant. And I mean to tell you that giant was coming toward him and he was running toward that giant. And he took out one of those stones and he put it in his sling and he slung it. And that stone sunk into the head of Goliath, the Bible says. Interestingly enough, again, Goliath falls forward. And sometimes we wonder, you would think, obviously, if you got uh, hit in the forehead with a stone, you'd go backwards. I got to believe, when you get over 500 pounds moving in one direction, when you got someone that says, I'm going to eat that little guy up for lunch, and all of a sudden you get hit with a stone, the momentum of that weight and that body keep on going forward, and down on his face he goes. David looks around, runs on over, and jumps up on Goliath. And there he's standing on Goliath. And he realizes, I don't have no sword. What am I going to do? i got to finish the job. i got to make sure he's dead for good. i got to kill me a giant. He pulls that old sword of Goliath out. And they say that that sword weighed probably 15 pounds. A standard sword probably weighs anywhere from about two to four pounds. But not this sword, it's Goliath's sword. About 15 pounds and he raises that sword over his head and he lets the weight of it and the power of his own body knock it down. And off comes the head of Goliath. It just rolls off. Old David runs over there and he grabs that old head. Woo-hoo! Yeah! That head probably had to be about as big as his torso. I don't know about you, but it had to feel pretty good standing on top of old Goliath. Here's old David, probably no more than about 140 pounds soaking wet. And here's a giant that's probably plus 500 pounds. And old David, with God's help, brought out the giant. He killed a giant that day. Now I want to give you the message. Turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 12. The Bible says in chapter 16, verse 12, and again, this is, has always perplexed me. And he sent and brought him in. Now, when we look at chapter 16, what we're going to realize at this point And again, remember, it is prior to Goliath. It's prior to a giant falling. It's prior to David getting the victory. We're going to see here in verse 12 of chapter 16 that God had sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king. Now, Jesse had brought all seven of his sons, or at least all seven that were available, in front of Samuel. However, God said, these aren't the ones we're looking for. Oh, they look like soldiers, and they look like they could certainly be a king, but they were not God's chosen. He said, don't you have any other sons? Oh, of course, we have one other son. He's taking care of the sheep. It's little David. And so we find here in verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. He was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now listen, I think it's interesting to note now, watch what happens here. Immediately then, right on down here in the same chapter, the Bible says, the Bible says in the next verse even, but the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord that came upon David, notice, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So we have David over here being anointed and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. But on the other hand, we have Saul and the Spirit of the Lord departs from him in the next verse. And someone says, that doesn't make sense. I thought the Lord Jesus, and he lived inside us. He, he indwelt us. He, he took up residency and he does today in the dispensation of grace in which you and I live in the church age. But back in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Holy Spirit, I should say, came upon a man, came upon a woman to do the work of God and the will of God. But then he also could depart from them. And in this case, Saul now no longer is is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is no longer empowering him to do the work and, and the will of God. Instead, he has now come upon David because he is the anointed king now. And so what is replaces a, the Spirit of God, <laughs> an evil spirit. Usually that's how it works, by the way. If the Spirit of God is not controlling your life, then it's probably an evil spirit. But nonetheless, the Bible goes on to tell us here now, in verse 21, and David came to Saul and stood before him. Now, Saul now has an evil spirit from the Lord. And one of his workers says to him, you know what? We need to find somebody that can play a harp. We need to find somebody that can bring comfort to our king. When he has these episodes, when he's struggling and having difficulty in his emotions, we want to bring somebody that can play a harp and calm him. So they go searching for someone, and guess who they find? David. And so David came to Saul, verse 21, and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took an harp and played with his hands, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. So remember now that this passage says that David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly. Remember, this is before Goliath. This is before the battle in the Valley of Elah. Now I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're back in chapter 17 now, verse 15. So David is now playing a harp, and David, it appears, is helping Saul from time to time with his armor. And the Bible tells us in chapter 17, verse 15, it says, But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David is now with Saul, but he returns back to his father Jesse, and he ends up in the field taking care of the sheep. 
And we know that David's father now says, you know what? Your brothers are over there at the battle. They're over there facing the Philistines. Three of your oldest brothers, I want you to take some things to the older brothers, and I want you to be a blessing to them. So David, of course, leaves the sheep and, and, and someone else in charge of the sheep. He makes his way to the battle, and that's where we picked up. Here all of a sudden now, David is listening to this Goliath, this huge, huge giant, spewing his blasphemies. I want you to continue now to notice. On one side are the Philistines on a mountaintop. On the other side is Israel on the mountaintop. And there lay or stand Goliath in the valley. David says, enough is enough. Turn now to 1 Samuel 17, 56. We're going to get there. We're almost there. Now David has found his way into a valley. There he took that stone and he had slung it. Old Goliath came down hard. He is, that, that rock sunk so deep into his forehead, he couldn't think about nothing. And old David stood over top of him with that old sword and off with his head. Now watch. The Bible says now in verse 56, And the king said, Inquire thou whose son the strapling is. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. I mean, he's done whoop Goliath. He's already gotten a great victory, an impossible victory. And now all of a sudden Abner, this great general, turns around and grabs him up and takes him before Saul because Saul's wondering, who in the world is David? Whose son is David? David comes rolling in with a big old head on his shoulder. Man, I'm going to tell you what, he's carrying that head through town. He's carrying that head everywhere he can. I'm telling you, I don't know about you. I don't know, that seems pretty gross to me. But it's all, I, 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 he's carrying the head. And Saul said to him, verse 58, Whose son art thou, thou young man? And David said, I'm the son of thy servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, I don't know about you, but that confounds me. How is it that before the battle ever took place, we have David here, who the Bible talks about as playing before Saul? As a matter of fact, the Bible goes on to tell us that when he stood before Saul, that Saul loved him greatly. That makes no sense to me. Does that make sense to you? I'm thinking to myself, if he loved him so much, then what in the world's going on here? Why do you have to ask, whose son are you? Why do you have to ask, who's, what's your name? Why did he have to send Abner for this young man? I, get, I don't understand it. Why wouldn't he have recognized him immediately? He was supposed to be an armor bearer, right? Here he is trying on his armor. I don't get why he wouldn't have recognized David. I have a thought. First of all, I believe that he loved him for what he did for him, but not for who he was. 
I believe that David played that harp and he played it well. I believe that he as, was a hard worker and whatever he did, he did with all his might. And I believe that Saul saw him and said, boy, I love how he plays a harp. I love how it makes me feel. I love this David. But he didn't even know him. He just loved what he could do for him. Number two, he saw David, but he didn't notice him. He saw him. Every time he played, he saw him. Every time he handed him a piece of armor, he saw him. Every time he saw him sweep in the stall, he saw him. But he didn't notice him. You know, I'm concerned today because I believe this is happening in our ranks. I believe it's happening in our homes. I believe today that there are husbands that see their wives, but they don't notice them. I believe there are wives that see their husbands, but they don't notice them. I believe there are parents that see their kids, but they don't notice them. I believe it's true to say that we can look on the outside and we can see a person just in passing, but we don't really know them. We don't really understand who they are. We don't know what makes them tick. And may I say today that if we're going to save the next generation, if we're going to make an impact in the next generation, my friend, we better notice them. Preacher, I want to save my marriage. You better notice your spouse then. We go off to work and we come home and we notice that the bills are paid and that the chores are done, but we don't, I mean, we, we see that the chores are paid and the bills are, the bills are paid and the chores are done, but we don't notice the person. Oh, I love them. I love them. But you don't even know them. I'm going to tell you what, that kind of shallow love isn't going to accomplish anything. And in the end, it's only going to hurt a relationship. It's only going to cause barriers that have never been there to exist sooner or later. He saw David, but he didn't notice him. Can I tell you that it would not be till after David had killed the giant that he was finally noticed? Can I tell you, it won't be till we allow God to use us to kill a giant that will be noticed by our friends and loved ones. That will be noticed by our churches and by the world in which we live. It won't be till after God uses us to kill a giant or two that they're going to take notice of our faith and notice of our life and notice of our lifestyle. See, a giant represents the impossible today. And God is looking for a man that will attempt the impossible. The church needs a man to do the impossible. The world has no hope except the impossible be done. We are living in a day when the enemy is perched upon a mountain, poised to attack. And they send their champions into the valley and they blaspheme our God. They frighten our families. They scare the saints and threaten our future. They mock our faith, attack our beliefs, and ban our Bibles. They seek to silence our voice, remove our influence, and outlaw our stand. The giants of science, falsely so-called, Darwinism and atheism, crowd across the valley. The giants of liberalism, humanism, and socialism, they threaten our way of life. 
The giants of immorality, rebellion, and godliness, they seduce our hearts and capture our minds. The giants of unforgiveness, bitterness, and discontentment, they bind our souls. The giants of selfishness, comfort, and convenience crush our motivation. The giants of laziness, prayerlessness, and and powerlessness cripple our lives and our ministries. The giants of apathy, inconsistency, and mediocrity are costing us our legacy. The giants are crying out. And they're causing the people of God to be paralyzed with fear. Someone, someone has to stand up. Someone has to step up. And someone has to kill a giant. It's interesting to note the order of things. In our passage. Look at verse 49. The Bible tells us, And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with the stone and smote the Philistine. We know there was no sword in his hand. But notice what verse 51 says after the head rolls off. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines. We see that the giant falls. We note that the enemy flees. And then, and only then, do the saints follow after and get in the battle. Can I tell you today, that all took place because one man killed a giant. And if we hope to save the next generation of fundamentalists, we're going to have to prove that the Bible and the old past still work. We're going to have to show them that living for God is still worth it all. And they're going to have to, and listen, if they're going to have to, they're going to have to see that the old-fashioned Bible living, it still works, and that it still puts the enemy to flight. The old adage says, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But you can put salt in his oats and make him thirsty. And if we hope to mobilize the body and energize the ranks, somebody's got to kill a giant. Somebody's got to do the impossible. Somebody's got to allow God to use them in a way that is miraculous. We're losing a generation today. Statistically, we look around us and we can't help but recognize the fact that there's a massive attrition rate among our young people. We note the increased exodus of our young families. We're ever reminded of the waning numbers, the missing members, the dwindling workforce, and the departed spirit in our services. What's the answer? What's the solution? I'll tell you what it is. If we're going to mobilize the young people, if we're going to cause them to have a burning desire in their heart to live passionately for Jesus Christ and to do something mighty on his behalf, my friend, somebody got to kill a giant. This just 
Living our lives in mediocrity is not going to get the job done. There is no way in the world that just going through the motions is going to inspire the next generation. It's time that we that believe in this book start practicing it and start using it to bring down some giants. I want my grandchildren to embrace the old paths. I want them to have some old-fashioned biblical standards. I want them to live in a world where they're separated from this old mess. I want them to have what I have had, but in order for them to have what I have, they have to want it. They better see some giants fall in our prayer lives. Better see them fall in our marriages, our finances, and in our ministries. Somebody's got to kill a giant. I want my children to turn out for God. Well, you better get started killing some giants then. Mom and dad, you need to kill some giants in the sight of your children. Let them see you serving God and winning souls and getting victory over sin, controlling your temper, treating your spouse with respect and love, and then reading your Bible daily and praying together and memorizing Scripture and knocking on doors and teaching Sunday school. You need to do it all with a good attitude and a good spirit. Quit pretending to be a Christian. Start looking like one and acting like one. Kill a giant. You know, when you kill a giant, it's going to inspire others to do the same. Take your Bible and look over at 2 Samuel chapter 21. It just seems we're so content with mediocrity in our lives today. I'm a good enough Christian. Good enough Christians don't produce godly children. We're losing a generation. And I don't know about you, but I don't want my children to go into some liberal church and hear some other version and find out that they, have to, they can live just like the world. That is not scriptural, nor is that biblical. I want them to understand that the old paths are worth living for, that Jesus Christ is worth living for. And I want them to know that it will be worth it all. And that although they may give up some things along the way, they're going to gain so much more. And they can see it in my life. As I kill a giant, they say, I want to kill some myself. Notice what it says in 2 Samuel 21, verse 15. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war against with Israel. War again with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And David waxed faint. David's no longer a young man now. It's been 43 years or so we think. 43 years later now after Goliath. And now he's waxing faint as he fights. As he has war again with the Philistines. And the Bible tells us, and Ish Babanab, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, he being girded with a new sword thought to have slain David. But let me tell you something, that ain't how it went. Because Abishai, the son of Zariah, secured him and smote the Philistine and killed him. We can go on down through the passage and it goes on to tell us, and it came to pass after this, that there was again a battle with the Philistines. Can I tell you there was another giant? Can I tell you that giant fell? And he goes on, and there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines in verse 19. And guess what? That old giant went down hard again because somebody killed a giant. Can I tell you, as you read through this four times, there are giants that are falling, and David isn't killing a one of them. But 43 years earlier, David had killed a giant. And can I tell you, he inspired a nation to kill giants. 
Can I tell you that this church will never go anywhere until we start killing some giants? Can I tell you there are not going to be young people that want to continue to come to this church and want to serve the Lord and go out soul winning unless somebody kills a giant, unless somebody's getting saved, lives are being transformed and changed, unless marriages are being rekindled and brought back together, unless lives are being lived on behalf of Jesus Christ and they can see that it's worth it all. What about the giant of lust in your life? Is he kicking your butt? It's time you kill a giant. Don't expect your children to want to be godly and live for the Lord if you can't deal with your sin. Till we start killing giants, they won't. What about bitterness in your life? What about the giant of unforgiveness? The giant of envy? The giant of temper? The giant of apathy, the giant of ease, the giant of mediocrity. What about the giant of fear in our lives that keeps us from serving God and going out into the valley to kill a giant? Someone's got to kill a giant. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, William Carey said, the great missionary. And giants represent the impossible. I'm going to tell you, God is in the business of the impossible. And this next generation needs to see an example of giant killers so that they're inspired to become the same. Professional baseball, it's been played in America since 1875, but on September the 14th, 1990, something happened that had never happened before or since. Late in his career, Ken Griffey Sr., who had been a member of the World Series champion Cincinnati Reds years before, was signed by the Seattle Mariners. His son, Ken Griffey Jr., was just starting his major league career. In the first inning of a game against the Angels, Griffey Sr. stepped up to the plate, and I mean to tell you, he hit the ball so hard, it soared over left center field. Home run. His son was to follow him to the plate. And he stepped up to the batter's box. And Ken Griffey Jr., he took his old bat and he knocked off the dirt off of his shoes. And he took his place at the, in the batter's box. And he took a couple of swings and he looked at the pitcher. And I mean to tell you, he was ready and the balls started coming. It wouldn't be long. He swung the bat. Out into left center field, almost, almost exactly where daddy hit it. Home run. It was the only time a father-son had hit back-to-back home runs in baseball history. Ken Griffey Jr. said later, that when dad had gone around the plates, he greeted him and he said, that's how you do it, son. That's how you do it. And his son stepped up and did it just like dad. Can I tell you today that if we're going to see the next generation honestly love Jesus with all their heart, be willing to serve him with every piece and part of their being, then they're going to have to see 
you and I kill some giants. I wonder, what are some of the giants in your life today that keep your children from seeing God exhibited and manifest in your life like they ought to? What giant do you need to kill this morning so that the world can see Christ in you? I'm not just talking about going to church and reading the Bible and praying from time to time. I'm not talking about mediocrity. I'm talking about passionate, zealous, committed Christianity that drives us to our knees and into the presence of God faithfully that causes us to give our life without reservation to the creator of all the universe and speaks volumes to our children that living for God is worth it, that it will carry you through. He will carry you through no matter what. Get on board, young man, young lady. But somebody's got to kill a giant! Go kill a giant and save the next generation. See, if we don't kill the giants, the giants are going to kill our future. Father, we come to you. We ask, dear God, that you'd bless us, that you'd help us today. Again, Lord, we are desperate for your touch, and we need you so. Father, I don't know what it is in a life today that's in need, but, Father, I think about just the fact that some have maybe stepped back from serving the Lord like they used to. Some have grown fearful of the enemy. Some have gotten comfortable with a lifestyle that's not as separated unto you. Maybe lust, bitterness, unforgiveness, envy, their temper, just simple apathy or ease, maybe mediocrity or fear has gripped their heart and as a result that giant has kept them hidden and no one's taken notice Lord it won't be till we kill some giants that people notice us that the community notices us that the world notices us that the new convert notices that our children notice that our families notice God help us to do the impossible with your help your strength enable us to kill a giant that many shall fear and trust in the Lord we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed. Every